You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors and elders here, and uh, the honor as well to open up the Word of God with you this morning and to hear God speak. Um, We're going to be looking at Isaiah 25 this morning, the passage that Shay read in our call to worship. We're going to do this a little bit differently. So I I would invite you to turn there um, so that you have it in front of you. And as we begin, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bless us and to be with us um, during our time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have had to sing praises to you this morning already, to declare the hope that awaits us through our eternity with you. We understand today, Lord, that all is not right in this world. And we thank you that as we come together in a difficult season, that your words remain true. And that we can gather with hope to know that this is not the end. That there is a day that is coming when every wrong will be made right. And when you will be worshipped forever. So we pray that even if only a little bit, that it would please you to stir in our hearts a deeper longing for that day by the power of the Spirit and in the hope of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. A long time ago, in a land far away, there lived a young woman and a young man. The young man loved the woman, and with the blessings of their family, they decided to marry. When the time came for the wedding, the families of the bride and groom welcomed guests from their small town. Everyone came, and none were left uninvited. As friends and family joined the celebration, there was with them a man around 30 years old. He attended along with his mother and several of his friends. After the wedding ceremony, as the evening sun gave way to the coolness of dusk, there came the wedding feast. The wedding guests dined on roasted goat, Fresh honey, cheese, and bread, and wines from local vintners. All that was heard were the sounds of laughter, satisfied conversation, and joy. At a certain point during the wedding feast, when all were quite content, having eaten and drank their fill, a commotion arose among some of the attendants. As the man who had accompanied his mother and friends sat among the celebrants, he could tell that there was some trouble at the gathering. Presently, his mother walked to the table where the man sat and said in a hushed voice, My son, the master of the feast reports that there is no more wine for the celebration. The son, somewhat surprised at his mother's words, replied, Mom, no. It's not my time. Despite her son's objections, the woman confidently returned to the feast attendants and said to them, whatever he tells you, do it. 
It's hard to know exactly what the man was thinking during this interchange. He would have known as a child of the nation of Israel that to run out of wine at a celebration like this was something that risked shame, not only for those organizing the feast, but also for the families of the bride and groom. He would have also surely remembered the promise declared when he was still in his mother's womb. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Of course, every mother thinks that her son is wonderful. But this was different. She came with the knowledge that her son could do something about the party because of who he was and what he had come to do. But why involve him at the feast? And why now over something as seemingly insignificant as wine? What could it mean? Though it is somewhat speculative, it's possible that in this moment, the man was recalling an even earlier promise, one that was given not to his mother, but through one of the prophets of old, a man who was called Isaiah. Long ago, Isaiah spoke of a promise concerning another feast, one that would usher in a kingdom that would never end. Now, Isaiah lived 700 years before the time of this man and the wedding, and he ministered and prophesied during an era in which the worst was coming to the nation of Israel. Three centuries had passed since the first king had ruled, which only happened because the people demanded a human king just like the other nations who did not know God. And so God gave them their wish and enthroned King Saul as the first king of Israel. King Saul was a severe man who threw away his kingdom due to his pride and folly. After Saul came King David, who like Saul failed in profound ways during his life, but was nonetheless a good, godly, and honorable king a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon followed him, and he exceeded his father in wisdom, but he also surpassed him in idolatry. These three kings each led a united nation, but after their respective reigns, Solomon's son Rehoboam brought extreme calamity and division to the nation. Because of his arrogance and impudence, an uprising from rival factions within Israel led to a severing of the nation into two separate states, the ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, and lonely Judah to the south. In the decades that followed, things only got worse for the beleaguered people. Those who reigned over this northern kingdom they only led the land further and further into idolatry. Despite their identity as God's own people, who were to bring blessing to all nations, 
They just wanted to be like everybody else. And they got what they wished for. Such was their descent into darkness that God's prophets began to warn them that such wanton rebellion would not be without consequence. And so it was that after a further 200 years of unceasing sin and lawlessness, the kingdom of Assyria came from the north and conquered the kingdom of Israel and led it into captivity. As they had been in Egypt, so they were once more, enslaved, led astray, and without hope. It is in this sad era that Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. God had promised to David that one of his descendants would always sit on his throne, a promise that to this point remained true. But to be honest, things looked pretty bleak from Isaiah's perspective. He had witnessed the fall of his brothers and sisters to the north and warned his tribe that the same fate was to come to them. They too would be overtaken by a rival nation. And for the very same reasons, their rejection of the Lord God as their rightful king in place of false idols taking the shape of man and beasts and creeping things. Yet somewhat surprisingly, amid the darkness that overwhelmed Israel and Judah, Isaiah also spoke of great hope that would come to God's people. God's promises, all of them, would remain true. Though they would be taken into exile, God would redeem and restore his people. Where Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, had with very few exceptions become an epicenter of wickedness, a city of disrepute and reproach, God would establish a new city, a new Jerusalem, Mount Zion. A city where all that would be known was joy and love, and fellowship, and peace, and life forever. It is of this city that Isaiah spoke when he said these remarkable words. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
children are largely unable to see beyond the desires of a given moment. This can make it challenging when it comes to helping them with their unmet expectations. But positively, they usually get over things pretty quickly. Adults are similar in that they still wrestle with their desires, but we are different in many ways. As we grow older, we become more aware of our, of our own weaknesses, our struggles, our insufficiencies. But we also become attuned to the deep longings that are possible for us to experience. We see our sin and we ache for something to be different. We experience loss and we know the sting of grief and we pray that somehow healing would come. We witness friendships end and we know acutely the sting of betrayal. We feel deep in our souls that things are not as they should be. Yet we often forget that we feel such things because there is a way that things should be. We thirst because we were made to drink. It is to this reality, the intersection of our sin, our suffering, and the deep desire for things to be different that Isaiah speaks. What Isaiah described was a day, a future day, when all of Israel's troubles and ours would be resolved, when every threat would be eliminated, when all that will be left is shalom, or the way things are supposed to be. Isaiah promises a kingdom a promise that every wrong will be made right. So great will the wonder of that day be that it will be marked by a feast that we can hardly begin to comprehend. At this feast, there will be people from everywhere. There will be people who will have come from all across the world, all who have put their hope in God and his love and we will celebrate their coming. None who are called will be left uninvited, and none who are invited will not come. The meekest among us will be honored as kings and queens, for we will be welcomed home as children to the household of God. We will greet one another as family, for that is what we will be. Next will come the food. Some like to think of this description as a metaphor, that this is what it will be like to be with God in his kingdom. We will drink from the river of his delights, quotes the psalmist. We will be satisfied and content and at rest. And of course, this is true. This is what it will be like. But in addition to the truth of such descriptions, there will also be a feast the likes of which none of us have ever seen. What else could there be in celebration of God's gracious work of salvation? 
But while this feast will be lavish, it will not be gluttonous. It will be without sin or excess. It will be the feast that redeems all feasting. And so there will be food and lots of it and of the best kinds that you can imagine. Perhaps a true Texas brisket wrapped in butcher paper and smoked for 18 hours over the coals of post oak. Perhaps a three Michelin star tasting menu that overwhelms with flavor bite after bite. Perhaps Shaolong Bao and hand-pulled noodles. Maybe slow-roasted lechon, lumpia, pancit, and pandasol. It could be taco after taco after taco after taco after taco. Maybe the finest milk breads, butter, and fresh jams. Maybe a plate of patty melts from Whataburger. But Isaiah also says there will be the finest wine, which admittedly, it's a little weird to talk about at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning, but the significance of which will be fully understood as we return to of our story in the, of the wedding in a few moments. Isaiah says there will be aged wine, well refined. The viticulture practices in ancient Israel differed from the modern era, so we can substitute our understanding of the type of wine that will accompany this feast. We can say at least that it's not going to be too buckchuck, but perhaps the finest Bordeaux and Chardonnays and Cabernet Sauvignons and Ports, all from the best vintages. But as we drink of this fruit of the vine, there will be no belligerence or drunkenness, only gladness of heart and satisfaction at the things of God. But what is it that will be celebrated on that day? A feast of such glory requires something worth remembering. Isaiah says that we will recall that there is at present a veil that covers all people, but that God will swallow it up. What is this covering, this veil? And what could be so profound about what God will do about it? And I will ask you, what is the ultimate problem that every one of you and I will face? What is the one thing that we are not going to escape? It is our deaths. Whatever we may try to do, there is one enemy that still commands authority over our lives. One foe that we cannot defeat. One day we will die. Disease will finally have its say. Our hearts will cease their beating and our lungs will empty of air. We will close our eyes permanently, at least as we know it, and our life will end as a smoldering wick that has been quenched. Death, of course, was not the way things were supposed to end. Israel knew that in the beginning, when God first formed people out of the ground and blew into their lungs the breath of life, that his intent was that they live forever with him and that the world they, that he made would experience only flourishing and enjoy and his people infinite happiness. But the people also knew that their forebears chose the reign of sin rather than the rule of God, of autonomy and rebellion instead of submission and trust. 
The penalty for their transgression was death. And thus began the unraveling of the created world and the introduction of the finitude of human life. So when Isaiah says that God will swallow up death, he means death and everything that caused it. Our sin, our suffering, our brokenness, our sheer vulnerability to the darkness of this world, all will be subsumed by the God of light and life. Just think of what such a day will be like for those in God's kingdom. There will be no more anxiety or fear. You will never struggle with what someone thinks of you. You will never battle your own thoughts of self-condemnation. You will never be concerned about whether you will have enough money, about your performance at work, about your kids' behavior, about your broken relationships. There will be no more addiction and no more disorder. You will never give in to temptation ever again. You will never find yourself on the other end of a pattern of destructive behaviors wishing things were different because things will be different. There will be no more anger or rage or hatred. You're never going to be annoyed, irritable, cranky, disappointed, or dissatisfied with anyone or anything. No one is ever going to be depressed or spend a single moment battling feelings of despair or hopelessness. There will be no more dishonesty or deceit. People will have no reason to protect themselves against that which they fear, and so they'll have no reason to lie. There will be no more pride or arrogance. There'll be no more boasting, no more scorn, no more cynicism. There's never going to be another marriage that ends or a family that is broken through divorce. No one is ever going to be abused or violated ever again. There's only going to be gentleness and care, safety and protection. There will only be healing for those who have suffered in such ways in this life. There will never be another murder, act of violence, or crime. There will never be another funeral. You only have to say goodbye once. You'll never have to say goodbye again. You and everyone else will live unconcerned with disease or sickness, for your bodies will no longer be subject to the power of sin and death. Think about this. You're never going to bury another friend. You're never going to bury a child or a husband or a wife or a brother or sister or parent. You will never know grief or its sting as long as breath fills your lungs, which will be for as long as God is God and eternity persists, which is to say forever. We will know, as one writer describes it, only the best of days, every day, forever.
Yet it will not be as if we don't know where we've come from. Joy is only as sweet as it is because we know the true depths of sorrow. We will have come from somewhere where tears mark their paths like streams in the desert. We will have known shame and reproach. And for such ones, Isaiah speaks of the nearness and tenderness of God. He will wipe away tears from all faces. God himself will dry the tears of those who have sat in the ashes of grief. He will rid us of our reproach. You can't take shame with you anyways to where we're going. So he's going to remove it from our shoulders. And along with it, he will carry every burden that has ever broken us. But how do we know that this is what will happen? He is sworn by his very word. For the Lord has spoken. He has said it. And who can deny his promises? And what will the response be on that day from God's people? We will say with shared voice, however long it took, it was worth it. We waited, but it was not in vain. You have saved us. You have come. You are here. And we are with you. Let us be glad and rejoice for all our days at the mercy and love of our great God and Savior. We will sit and dine as brothers and sisters, and we will laugh and sing and dance and rejoice, for we who are the Lord's will never regret having put our hope in the living God. So as the man at the wedding sat and watched the scene unfold on the Judean countryside. Perhaps he remembered the promises of Isaiah and the declaration of what, to, what would to come. He knew how Judah did not heed Isaiah's warnings. They only persisted in idolatry and rebellion, and like Israel, eventually, they too were taken away into exile. Though there had been a return of God's people to their land, things had never been the same. Israel still waited for her king. She still longed for a kingdom. But this man also knew something else about Isaiah that along with God's judgment, he spoke of someone who would come to make things right. Someone who would heal every heart broken by sin and its effects. Someone who would know our sorrows and bear our burdens. Someone who would bring good news to those with none and liberty to those in bondage. Someone who would speak by his very life the mercies of God and the comforts of salvation. Someone who would give us beauty instead of ashes and a crown instead of rags. Someone who would plant his people as oaks that can never be moved. Someone who would be enthroned as king and who would usher in a kingdom where God would dwell with his people forever. But most of all, this man knew that the someone about whom Isaiah spoke was he. And so the man, Jesus of Nazareth, 
of the house and lineage of King David looked around at the wedding and saw six stone water jars positioned near the feast. And instructing the servants to fill them with water, he did something that no one could have understood in that moment. He turned water into wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine. The wine that people would have only opened on the most significant of occasions. Wine that meant something remarkable had happened. But why would he do such a thing? The scripture that contains this account tells us that through this act, he manifested his glory. Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana for this reason. He did it to show who he was and what he would do. He did it as a sign of things to come, as a way to say Isaiah's words were true. I will go to the cross to take your sins and I will be raised to give you life. And one day I will come back and death itself will meet its death. On that day, there's gonna be a feast. A day when the longings of your heart will be truly fulfilled. When every tear will be dried. On that day, we will share in the feast of the kingdom and I will bring it. We will celebrate then that the promise of the kingdom is the promise of every wrong made right. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the promises that you have given to us are true. We thank you that as we consider that day, you give us the opportunity to experience present hope through the life, resurrection, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. May we believe in him more fully. May we look to his coming with greater expectation and hope and anticipation. And would you in all things remind us of the promises of what you will do and what you have already begun to do through our Lord Jesus. We pray that this would be accomplished through the working of the Spirit who awakens faith in our hearts and by your power at work within us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.